Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Incredibly happy to welcome tonight's author to Skylight, uh, Rebecca Solnit, whose books you will find literally all over the store. If you were to come in on an average day and ask to see um, various titles by her, I would take you over to essays first, and we'd pick up we'd pick up uh, a field guide to getting lost, and we'd come over to travel, and we'd get wanderlust a history of walking. We'd take you over to our California section and just load you up with some more titles, and we'd still have three or four other sections at least to hit before we have finished. So you would literally find them all over the store. We've gathered them all at the front tonight if you would like to peruse her full body of, of work. Um, I had a funny response to that particular sort of you know, uh, prolific output um, of Solnit's, a sort of trepidation to even step in because it seemed like there were so many wonderful things that she'd written about that I would end up putting all of my own reading projects aside if I began to, to start on this. And then I also had this worry that I would pick the wrong book and somehow be disappointed and I would never get to touch all of the other wonderful things um, that she had written. <laughs> And I will tell you that one, I've never been disappointed in a Solnit book thus far or in a single essay. I encourage you to check out her writing on Tom Dispatch um, in Orion magazine and other places. Um, and that a good chunk of my other reading has been put aside, at least in the past few months. Um, so, but it's, it's been a wonderful experience. Um, for those of you who are curious, I did start with A Hope in the Dark, a book that I read um, at the time that the Occupy movement was picking up steam in 2011. And if you are needing a little political encouragement, it's a really good, good book to, to pick up. Um, but she is here tonight to read from her most recent piece, uh, A Far Away Nearby, which has also been described as her most personal. And given that, I don't think I should be the one to say anything about it. I think we should hear directly from her. So let's welcome Rebecca Solnit. Wow, where did you all come from? Okay, I know that I have some incredibly lovely friends in the front row. And is Elena here? At, um, yes, yes, okay, so four people. And I'm James, and, uh, but the rest of you, strangers, how amazing. So lovely to be here. And um, I even found parking. At, uh, so there's, would you guys rather have coherence or jewels? <laughs> 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 Jules. 
Do you think we could like get some kind of like riot going? Because like the Jules camp sort of assault the coherence camp or <laughs> something like that. So this is a book about storytelling, about empathy, about illness, and uh, it's really about the way we make our lives out of stories, which is often said as though it's this completely lovely and wonderful thing. I heard Eduardo Galeano, and I'm picky on him now, but mostly I adore him, say the world is made out of stories as though, isn't that awesome? But the world is made out of stories about the inevitability of your terrible marriage and the reason why you're worthless and will never amount to anything and why your race is inferior or your gender and why there's no alternative to capitalism. You know, uh, stories, stories can be wings, they can be prisons, they can be poison. And how we... You know, there's certain outside factors in our lives, but how we construct the stories is very much how we construct our lives. Uh, you can construct a, a lock, you can construct a key, you can construct dynamite uh, in your narratives. So this is a book that has a lot of fun with storytelling, but looks also at the stories that poison us and... Um, you know, and the ways that we connect through stories. Empathy is often seen as an emotional virtue. I got really interested in it for this book, and it seems more as much an imaginative skill. Before I can empathize with your life that's different than mine, I have to pay attention enough to perceive it. I have to tell, retell it to myself and imagine it so that I feel it. And I think of empathy as feeling that which you don't literally feel, and uh, which is one of the ways that we extend beyond our own boundaries, which we're usually told is our skin or something silly like that. But your real boundaries are everything you care about, um, which can vastly enlarge or reduce um, your scale. So this is about trying as well about trying to stake out a more complicated sense of how we're connected and who we are um, through these stories. But we're just going to have some jewels. This is an experiment because I've been doing. There's like I was getting into that set reading thing where I've done it like ten times, and I decided to just. Um, since the Jules people seem to be noisier than the Coherence people, are Jules always noisier than Coherence? <laughs> Thank you, Jules. In Hans Christian Andersen's retelling of the old Nordic tale that begins with... Never mind. <laughs> I'm reading you little chunks from various chapters that I picked out. I was hanging out with the lovely uh, Kim and Natasha and uh, Natasha's friend. and It was really great. The book party I had that launched the book in California was with my friend Ana Teresa. I'm going to read about in the next passage. Ana Teresa Fernandez, an amazing visual artist. And my friend Rupa Maria of Rupa and April Fish is an amazing musician. It feels like having a great writer and a great artist friend of mine here feels like a, more of that sort of girl power culture. So, so so I got really interested in fairy tales, um, uh, which sort of permeate this book. Less, I'm not at all. I've never been big on princesses, but I do like ordeals and uh, you know, and quests. And that's what interested me about fairy tales. Um, and the book really begins. Uh, my mother. My mother began to lose her memory, and it got to a point where we had to move her out of her house, and many crises and dramas and confusions ensued. It was the most turbulent summer of my life, and in the middle of it, my younger brother expressed his anxiety by picking every apricot on the tree in the house she ne would never live in again, and brought me 
in the book I said 100 pounds because I like to be like not overstate and be accurate because I was trained as a journalist and stuff but I now think it was 130 or 140 pounds of apricots which took up residence on my bedroom floor slightly larger than I am and uh, quite a looming presence and they felt like both a birthright and inheritance from somebody who tried hard to not give me anything for a very long time and a kind of riddle an allegory a metaphor waiting to be solved so I actually had a lot of fruit to process in the usual ways canning and preserves and chutneys and things like that and then I made a couple gallons of the most amazing elixir out of the apricot pits and um which you guys will taste when you visit. And, um, but it was really what the meaning was really what needed to be worked on. What, you know, what had she given me? What had I received? What, what is a gift? You know, and what about a gift? The gifts in fairy tales that are also ordeals, the room full of straw that has to be spun into gold overnight on pain of death, the mountain of grain that has to be sorted out. And the fairy tale tasks are really interesting because they're usually solved not by being brilliant or powerful, but through strategic alliances with other odd marginal creatures, mice, ants, uh, crones, and etc. And um, so there are a lot of fairy tales in this book, which is modeled after Russian dolls and the Arabian Nights uh, and as a book of stories within stories within stories. And the first chapter ends in Hans Christian Andersen's retelling of the old Nordic tale that begins with a stepmother, the wild swans. The banished sister can only disenchant her 11 exiled brothers who are swans all day but turn human at night by gathering stinging nettles barehanded from churchyard graves, making them into flax, spinning them and knitting 11 long sleeve shirts while remaining silent the whole time. If she speaks, they'll remain birds forever. In her silence, she cannot protest the crimes she's accused of and is nearly burned as a witch. Hauled off to the pyre as she knits the last of the shirts, she is rescued by the swans who fly in at the last moment. As they swoop down, she throws the nettle shirts over them, so they turn into men again, all but the youngest brother, whose shirt is missing a sleeve, so that he's left with one arm and one wing, eternally a swan man. Why shirts made of graveyard nettles? Why shirts made of graveyard nettles by bleeding fingers in silence should disenchant men turned into birds by their stepmother is a question the story doesn't need to answer. It just needs to give us compelling images of exile, loneliness, affection, and metamorphosis, and of a heroine who nearly dies of being unable to tell her own story. I think that was a ruby. Here's a diamond. The artist Ana Teresa Fernandez recently cast a pair of high-heeled shoes in ice and stood in the gutter of an inner city street at night until they melted and left her barefoot and free. It was a battle between the warmth of her body and the coldness of the shoes, between her own fierce will and the imprisonment of the Cinderella story. The shoes were astonishingly beautiful, strange, alarming. They were shoes that wanted to kill your feet, shoes too brittle to walk in, shoes of the kind called stiletto as though you could stab someone with them. In the two-hour video she compressed down to 40 minutes or so of ordeal. They slowly disintegrated, like a story falling apart, like a belief wearing out, like a fear melting away. When your hands or feet go numb with cold, they don't feel at all after a while. It's when they warm again that the pain begins, just as a limb hurts not when the blood flow ceases and it goes to sleep, but when it wakes up. Pain is when you wake up. 
Tall, athletic Anna told me it was when her feet began to thaw that the agony arrived. She endured the pain for the sake of a symbolic conquest of a pernicious story and for the sake of making a work of art that expressed her fierce feminism and brilliant imagination. In Cinderella, women deformed themselves to try and fit into the shoe. Anna destroyed the shoes, making something beautiful out of the war between flesh and ice, between a fairy tale that didn't fit in her own intransigent warmth. Not everyone has the will or the warmth. This is a whole string of pearls. Many stories are told about the Tang Dynasty artist Wu Daozi, sometimes named as one of the three great sages of China, that he ignored color and only painted in black ink, that he transgressively painted his own face on an image of the Buddha, that he painted a perfect halo in a single stroke without the aid of compasses, that he painted pictures of the dragons who cause rain so well that the paintings themselves exuded water, that the emperor sent him to sketch a beautiful region and reprimanded him for coming back empty-handed after which he painted a hundred-foot scroll that replicated all his travels in one continuous flow, that he made all his paintings boldly and without hesitation, painting like a whirlwind, so that people loved to watch the world emerge from under his, br his brush. One story about him I read long ago I always remembered. When he was showing the emperor the landscape he'd painted on a wall of the imperial palace, he pointed out a grotto or cave, stepped into it, and vanished. Some say that the painting disappeared too. In the account I remember, he was a prisoner of the emperor and escaped through his painting. When I was much younger, I saw another version of this feat that impressed me equally. In an episode of the Roadrunner and Coyote cartoon, the eternally hopeful predator makes a trap for the bird. At the point where a road ends in a precipice, he places a canvas on which he paints an extension of the road, complete with the red cliff on one side and the guardrail on the other. The roadrunner neither smashes into the painting nor falls through it, but runs into it and vanishes around the painted bend. When the coyote attempts to follow him, he breaks through the painting, plummets, is smashed up, and then yet again, as always, he is resurrected. Your door is my wall, your wall is my door. The one creature embodies grace, other foolish desire, as though there are two elemental principles that can never mingle in body or spirit. Chuck Jones, Wiley E. Coyote, is a version of the great creator deity of the North American continent, Coyote. This is the god whose eyes and cocks sometimes detach to seek their own satisfactions, who is often broken, occasionally killed, usually mutilated, always resurrected, and never annihilated, who represents the comic principle of survival. But only as I write do I also notice that the bird is a Taoist master. Like the calm masters nothing could touch in the stories of old China, they walk through fire, through walk, and on air with aplomb. These feats of the bird and the painter are paradoxical and impossible, but only literally, or only in some media. People disappear into their stories all the time. We live in stories and images, as immersed in them as they, though they were Wu Daozi's ink pots. We breathe in presuppositions and exhale further stories. We in the West have been muddled by Plato's assertion that art is imitation and illusion. We believe that it is a realm apart, one whose impact on our world is limited, one in which we do not live. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will, words will never hurt me, my mother liked to cite. But words hurt 
hurt her all the time, and behind the words is stories about how things should be and where she fell short, as told by my father, by society, by the church, by the happy, flawless woman of advertisements. We all live in that world of images and stories, and most of us are damaged by some version of it, and if we're lucky, find others or make better ones that embrace and bless us. As I wrote this, my friend Annie, there's a lot of friends, uh, really a lot of strong women in this book. It's funny because the most annoying readings see me as slightly pathetic because I actually admitted to suffering. So, um, none of you have suffered, have you? No? None of you are suffering now, are you? Because otherwise, would you have time to come to readings? Oh no, suffering. Very rare. Very, very rare. And, uh, so, but there's a so you know there's this weird way of reading it as though it's kind of pathetic, but it's a, I think there's there's a lot of riches here, and people are my, are my great wealth. Some of the amazing ones show up here. As I wrote this, my friend Annie sent me a note from Easter Island where she's working on a radio story. She wrote me of sweeping grasslands, dormant volcanoes, sheer vo black volcanic cliffs dropping into the sea. And there's magnificent stern moe, the great stone heads, scattered all over the island. I can't stop wondering what possessed the Rapa Nui to build them, and then after that was over, to conceive of the Birdman cult. Hundreds of years after the cultural near extinction of their makers, the heads were still provoking thought. They were still in our heads. Annie wrote to me and put the Birdman cult in mine. After their devastating contact with the European world, beginning on Easter of 1722, the Rapa Nui, the Easter Island people, made the cult with its dangers and arbitrarinesses more central to their lives. Those who had the gift of prophecy would choose the contestants in their dreams. To be dreamed of was a dangerous thing. The Contestants would swim to an islet off the coast, attempt to collect the first sooty turn egg of the season, swim back, then scale a cliff without breaking the egg. The losers sometimes drowned or were devoured by sharks or fell from the cliff. The winner was given a new name and isolated but exalted status for the year, and his clan won exclusive rights to the season's egg gathering from the small island where the turn's egg had been seized. The Birdman cult might just be an extreme case of the stories we weave all the time that make a small item, a trophy, a sign of spiritual or social status, a t token that changes your life. Only then familiarity of the Birdman cult makes us remark on its arbitrariness, since in our society people, people die in the attempt to climb mountains for no practical reason, kill because of words that insult them or their gods, and revere those who've won a prize handed out by a whimsical jury or because a combination of factors sent a ball into or over a net. We live in dreams. We go into the shark-filled sea to carry them out. We make one egg of the sooty turn, also known as the wide awake, into something to organize a whole society around. The turn's egg is small, speckled, nondescript. The god who presided over all this was called Make-Make. The things we dream up, wrote Annie to me. To become a maker is to make the world for others, not only the material world, but the world of ideas that rules over the material world, the dreams we dream and inhabit together. So, this one's made out of blood. Once upon a time, there was a wolf or a young man of that name, Ulf, Ulfer, which means wolf in Icelandic, a very Icelandic young man, though his father was African-American. The young wolf was stricken with, with leukemia when he reached adulthood. 
Neither the hero nor the villain of this book, he is instead the match to the tinder, though his own flame was almost out, and his own story, of which I know so little, must be worth telling at greater length. He had been the first love of a young Icelandic woman named Ellen, and then they parted ways but stayed close. She went on to become an artist who made installations of sounds and shadows and small nuances in large environments, experiments in the phenomena and pleasures of the perceived world. He came to see her in her new home in Berlin for what turned out to be their last time together, on his way to treatment in Sweden, the kind of treatment that is a last resort that can kill you or save you. We associate skeletons with death, but bones generate life abundantly, prolifically. The femurs, the ribs, the sternum, and other bones we see dry and white after death. And life harbor the marrow that produces billions of new blood cells daily, a bright red river gushing forth from bone. The process is called hematopoiesis, from the ancient Greek words for blood and for making. Poetry comes from the same word, poesis. And it belies Plato's argument that art is only imitation. Our word for poetry was their word for all the making in the world, of chairs, of houses, of bombs, of books, of blood, of gods. Making a poem is like making a chair. A poem is as real as a chair and sometimes more useful. The young man kept making, made music, worked on films, loved, was loved back, struggled, traveled, endured for a while. About a quarter million people a year are diagnosed with leukemia, the disease that impairs or alters the making of the blood. I did not know the young wolf who died of it. I did not know of his existence until after I went to Iceland. But he became a key that unlocked a door of my life, and perhaps I am an extension of his, and I'm grateful. So the book that... Uh, no, okay, a few more paragraphs. Ulver and Ellen, during the rendezvous in Berlin, went to a bookstore. He had a talent for choosing books, said Ellen and her mother, long after at my kitchen table. And they picked out a book because its title seemed so relevant to their uncertain fate. It was one of mine. Then he went north for his bone marrow transplant and then home to Iceland. The operation did not work. He did not die immediately, but they did not see each other again. Because when he commenced to die, she was too far away and he went too fast. So, and the book was a field guide to getting lost. Um, one of the strange things about writing is it's done in deep solitude, uh, as is reading. You know, usually don't know most of the life your books have, and it took me, it feels like more than a decade of having books out there to really have a sense of what they were doing and for them, the messages and bottles to wash up on beaches where I'd actually get reports. So she was really taken with the book and marked it up and underlined it and read it in a long gulp, although she's not usually a reader. And she's Icelandic, but she's fluent in five languages, like a good Icelander, including English. And um, and then she gave it to her mother, who's a, who's a literary woman and a great reader. And her mother read it on the airplane from, or the airplanes from Iceland to San Francisco, where the great Icelandic artist Olafur Eliasson was having his first big American show. And she was really taken with the book, too. She flew to San Francisco, took a taxi to her hotel, put on her little black dress, walked to the opening, walked up to Olafur, and he introduced her to me, which was a bit Alice through the wonder, through uh, Alice through the Looking Glass for her, for me to be the first person she met in the United States. <laughs> and um, I like coincidences, and I always feel when the coincidences get dense and rich and sweet that it's as though you're in tune with the the music of your life. And uh, this is partly a book about coincidences. And so because of the book, we had a really good conversation, and I was appalled to find out she was flying back to Reykjavik to write up the show the next day without seeing anything. 
So I said, what time is your plane? And I said, okay, I think it was 11. I'll pick you up at 8. And we did a little tour of San Francisco and talked about our parents with dementia and weather and all the other things and visual art, which we're both involved in, and books and writing and stories and... And I didn't, and I didn't have major ulterior motives. I'd always wanted to go to Iceland, but it was one of those sort of plans you think you'll do someday without a lot more attached to it. And the fact that you know I just met a second Icelandic person after Olaf Eliasson was great. I thought like now I have somebody to look up for coffee in five years. And my mother's condition. This was the, the month that everything went extremely seriously uh, wrong. My mother's condition really became a huge crisis. And um, and I finally also finally got good advice. Another coincidence: the kid who was transcribing my interviews for *A Paradise Built in Hell*, Dan Bullwinkle, turned out to be the son of the best Alzheimer's uh, social worker in the Bay Area, and she told us exactly what to do and where to go. So the other end of the month, in which I met Frida, and I was walking my mother around Lake Merritt in Oakland, to the hopes of putting her into a fairly calm state of mind for the intake interview, which worked gorgeously. And uh, we moved her into an incredibly wonderful place staffed entirely by angels, bodhisattvas, and saints, where she spent the last five years of her life. And um, while I was walking her around, the, my phone rang, and it was Frida in Reykjavik. And she said, You've always, you said you'd always wanted to visit Iceland. Um, how would you like, like $30,000 in six months in Roni Horn's library of water installation? And at that moment, you know, life, life, life at home sucked about as much as it had ever sucked for lots of reasons. The rest of them you can read about. And it just felt like a magic carpet, a genie in a bottle. You know, it was just really... And, it, and I shocked her by saying yes instead of, like, asking all the questions you're supposed to ask. And I didn't... It took six months, seven months for me to actually get there, but it was really magical. And in the middle of this book which not very much happened in this book. My mother declines. I have a little medical incident. Um, lots of other stories are recounted. I go um, do very little in Iceland for three months. Um, there's a lot of weather. And, um, and I had a lot of fun. How many of you know the book Tristram Shandy? where it takes half the book for it, uh, which is supposed to be his life story for him to get around to being born. This is a book where I announce I'm going to Iceland in the second chapter, arrive in the ninth chap eighth chapter, digress through throughout that chapter, get back to Iceland, you know, um, eventually. At, um, so um, I think there's a lot of blood in here. And here's here's a red thread to string your beads on. The night before surgery, Sam and Cat took me out to dinner, and then Cat went to rehearsal, and Sam and I went to Ocean Beach late at night. On the firm, wet sand at low tide, your footprints register clearly before the waves come and devour all trace of passage. I like to see the long line we each leave behind, and I sometimes imagine my whole life that way, as though each step was a stitch, as though as a needle leaving a trail of thread that sewed together the world as I went by, crisscrossing others' paths, quilting it all together in some way that matters, even though it can hardly be traced. A meandering line sutures together the world in some new way, as though walking was sewing, and sewing was telling a story, and that story was your life. A thread now most often means a line of conversation via email or other electronic means, but threads must have been an even more compelling metaphor when people witnessed or did the woman's work that is spinning. It is a mesmerizing art, the spindle revolving below the strong thread that the fingers twist out of the mass of fibers held in an arm or a distaff. 
The gesture turns a cloudy mass of fiber into lines with which the world can be tied together. Likewise, the spinning wheel turns, cyclical time revolving to draw out the linear time of a thread. The verb to spin first meant just this act of making, then evolved to mean anything turning rapidly, and then it came to mean telling a tale. Strands a few inches long twined together into a thread or yarn that can go on forever, like words becoming stories. The fairy tale heroines spin cobwebs, straw, and nettles into whatever is necessary to survive. Shahrazad forestalls her death by telling a story that is like a thread that cannot be cut. She keeps spinning and spinning, incorporating new fragments, characters, incidents into her unbroken, unbreakable thread. Do you want water? Um, oh, thank you. <coughs> <coughs> <laughs> unbroken, unbreakable narrative thread. Penelope at the other end of the treasury of stories prevents her wedding to any of her suitors by unweaving at night what she weaves by day on her father-in-law's funeral garment. By spinning, weaving, and unraveling, these women master time itself, and though master is a masculine word, this mastery is feminine. Women were spinsters before the word became pejorative, when distaff meant the female side of the family. In Greek mythology, every human life is a thread that the three mori or fates spin, measure, and cut. With Rumpelstiltskin's help, the unnamed fairy tale heroine spins straw into gold. But the wonder is that every spinner takes the amorphous mass before her and makes a thread appear from which comes the stuff that makes the world from a fishing net to a nightgown. She makes form out of formlessness, continuity out of fragments, narrative and meaning out of scattered incidents. For the storyteller is also a spinner or weaver, and a story is a thread that meanders through our lives to connect us each to each and to the purpose and meaning that appear like roads we must travel, as we did on that midnight walk on the beach, trailing footprints behind like stitches. The eye is a needle some find useful, though the thread, of course, is shadow, writes the poet Brenda Hillman in her poem String Theory Sutra. The English and Latin word suture has the same root as Sanskrit sutra or Pali Sutta. They both have to do with sewing. The sutras, the most sacred texts of Buddhism, were named for the fact that they were originally sewn. The flat blades of palm leaves were strung together by two lines of thread that tied together the stiff, narrow pages like accordion blinds. The books were copied by hand over and over in that climate of decay. Thus leaf became book and knowledge was held together and transmitted in a, th a, a line, a thread, a lineage. The term sutra, as in the Platform Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, or the Lotus Sutra, generally means a teaching by the Buddha himself or one close to him, as distinguished from the scholarly and philosophical texts that piled up afterwards. The word is said to have arisen from the actual sewing or binding of these old palm leaf books, but it must have had some more metaphorical sense, as though the sutra's words and meanings running through all things, uh, as though the sutra's words and meanings run through all things and bind them together, as though the threads are paths you can follow and veins through which life flows. So now way at the back. It's going to get cold again. I think this is a chunk of blue ice. Have any of you been far enough north, north to see the deep blue of ice in the Arctic? Have any of you been to the Arctic? Um, we got two hands. I got to spend that summer in Iceland, then I went way north of there to latitude 80 and north of Svalbard, and ice turns this incredible sapphire color that's, you, you have to see. Go look at pictures if, you, if you're not going to go there. 
Not the slender gray book with the Viking ship embossed on its cover. Not the deep blue one with the end papers that map Greenland and the Canadian Arctic. Not the turquoise one with the Inuit faces on the wide spine. Nor the dark green one with white letters and a white polar bear printed on the coarse fabric cover. But the first English language book, a thick one titled Arctic Adventure, bound in pale blue with an embossed blue dog sled and blue driver. This one tells a tale of what it means to live inside your own breath. A house made of exhalations, as though your body were spinning itself a shell, as though you blew a bubble that froze solid with yourself inside. The Danish-Jewish explorer Peter Freuchen was 20 years old his first winter in the Arctic and bursting with vitality and enthusiasm for the other world he'd entered. He volunteered to stay alone on the edge of the ice sheet in Pustervig in northern Greenland for the duration of the dark winter of 1906-1907. A few other men were there at the beginning in a stone and timber house built for the purpose, about nine, nine feet by 15. Freuchen's task was to go out every day and take weather measurements on the mountain, which sounds easy enough until you factor in that it was dark most of the time and extremely cold and that the wolves that ate his seven dogs were deeply interested in him as well. It was so cold that even inside his cabin, even with the small coal stove, the moisture in his breath condensed into ice on the walls and ceiling. He kept breathing. The house got smaller and smaller. Early on, he wrote, two men could not pass without brushing elbows. Eventually, after he was alone in the coal, the one factor that had kept the house from growing in on me, he remembered, was gone. He threw out the stove to make more room inside. He still had a spirit lamp for light and boiling water. Before winter and his task ended and relief came. He was li living inside an ice cave made of his own breath that hardly left him room to stretch out to sleep. Peter Freuchen, six foot seven, lived inside the cave of his breath. Vanity of vanities, says the King James Bible, the King James translation of Ecclesiastes, and the word that was translated as vanity was the Hebrew word hevel. It means breath or vapor, or something as transient as a breath, as fleeting as vapor, except in the Arctic, where the vapor in Peter Freuchen's breath became a structure. So you might have been able to take away the house the way builders take away the wooden form in which they cast concrete and leave the ice that was solidified breath. I first encountered Freuchen when I was in Iceland, reading a more recent book that mentioned him in passing. The passage that struck me wasn't about Freuchen's beloved Greenland, but the far north of Canada that is now Nunavut, the indigenous administered homeland. It was about a small band of Inuit travelers he met nearly a century ago. Halfway there, the weather changed suddenly. Oddly, it wasn't the cold that nearly killed them, but heat. During the night, their snow huts caved in, and the frozen bits of skin-rotted meat and bones used to construct their sleds thawed and were eaten by dogs by the dogs. They had no food and no way to travel. After eating their dogs, they began to starve. Ada Gudaluk then ate the bodies of her husband and children. When Peter met Ada Gudaluk, she had since married the village leader. She told him, I got a new husband and got with him three new children. They're all named for the dead ones that only served to keep me alive so they could be reborn. It wasn't the cannibalism, but the sled made of frozen scraps that fascinated me at first. Cold is a kind of enchantment that turned flesh into solid structures, like the pumpkin turned into a coach in Cinderella, the fairy gold that turns back into leaves in the morning, like the frozen breath I read about when I went deeper into Freudian stories and warmth the curse. When I went to the source, I found that the sled or sleds weren't just scraps, and neither bones nor rotten material was used. So always check your sources. So... 
Frozen flesh and hide were occasional materials for sled building in a place far from trees and wood and a time of limited access to materials. As Freudian describes it, first they soaked caribou skins in water at the edge of the ice. Then they rolled them together and placed some ice blocks on top of the skins to make them freeze in the exact shape of sledge runners. For crossbars, they used thin slices of meat that had been frozen by being placed on the smooth ice and large frozen salmon that they planed down somewhat with an axe. Thus they fashioned usable sledges and off they went one day just after the sun had returned. A good time to start on the trip. You know the sun just that far north the sun disappears altogether for weeks or months um, at winter just as it doesn't go down at all in summer. It's one of the ways the Arctic is otherworldly. We talk, well, most of us grew up believing that there's 365 days a year but if a day is the amount of time between, is the light between darknesses in uh, Svalbard Winter lasts more than, there's a night that lasts more than a thousand hours. There's a day, a day that lasts even longer than that without darkness. And in between, the light and dark ratio changes really dramatically in a kind of strobe effect. So I don't know, maybe there's 175 or 200 days a year that far north. If you went all the way to the poles, there's really one long day and one long night a year. Everything is different in the Arctic where nothing decays. Um, when cold is really your friend, it's the warmth that's treacherous, that makes things soft and rotten and unreliable. And so I got interested in the story of this woman who ate her children to her dead children. She nobody nobody was killed as food to survive. And I found I I also was enchanted with Freudchen, and I began reading his books. He told her story three profoundly different ways with different meanings, and sometimes sort of blaming them and or blaming it on the battle days. So I'm saying something like that could have happened to me. Here's my story, and giving you lots of details of Inuit uh, life. And that he found that he was unable that the story, like the melting sled, kept falling apart into different meanings and different facts was interesting. And then I went online and found at least a dozen other versions Inuit people had told, and found that they'd never stopped telling the story. Something was so compelling about this woman who had been forced to eat her family to survive. And as you read them, you realized how glib Freudian was. And it's Inuit culture; you don't want to trouble a guest, so you put a good face on things. But the fact she that she announced she told the story to him with a smile doesn't mean she wasn't traumatized but what's also remarkable is she survived she remarried she had children but she became a great benefactor who saw that nobody went hungry who distributed her own goods widely who was a charismatic leader who was baptized as a catholic and took the name monica so she became monica at a queen of igloolik and wore a crown made out of the copper band from a big telescope around her her head and uh, was so remarkable that, well, to pick up again, you know, and was so remarkable that the both elementary school and the high school in Igloolik are named after her, so she's a strong presence now. The people who knew her saw a long and rich life with a brief, terrible incident early on. Freudchen only saw a corner of the picture. The picture always gets bigger. There's always more to tell. One thread is tangled up with all the others. Even when it stops, other threads carry the story onward beyond the horizon. Though which version was true, I do not know. Sometimes I think Freudchen got 
an earlier version before the embroideries and enhancements entered in. As soon as I think Ada Gudeluk's kin were better listeners. I had begun by being fascinated with a sled that may not have existed and certainly did not exist as it was described in the contemporary account I first read in that room in Iceland. I kept reading, but Freudchen's books was drawn by him into his cheerful version of the Arctic, learned a lot, became enchanted by him, then disenchanted, found his three versions, went further, found several others, found in the end that much of the story fell apart like this led. Beyond it was a remarkable woman whose life was only accessible in the most general outlines. She was stranded, suffered, survived, begat, sustained, was remembered with gratitude and admiration. It was a life. Freudchen nearly died of a sled that did not melt, not far from where Adagudaluk lived. He was traveling in the Igluluk region in the early spring of 1923. When he went out alone to pick up cache supplies and got stranded in a blizzard, he dug a hollow, covered it with his laden sled, and crawled in to spend the night with the skin of a bear's head for a pillow and a sealskin to cover the entrance. Later, in the darkness, he found that the sealskin would not budge. Ice and a snowdrift had accumulated over it, and he was buried in a very small, very cold space. At loss for a tool, he shat, fashioned a tool from his own excrement, waited the little while it took to freeze solid, and then used it to chip away at the ice. Finally, he used his lungs, emptied and filled, to heave the heavy sled away, inch by inch, breath by breath. Outside at last, he could only crawl, and he crawled for three hours to where the others were. One of his feet had frozen solid and he lost it and he described the pain, the gangrene, and the nightmares. It's a gruesome story in which he inhales his way out of a cave, even more confining than the one he exhaled into, be into being at the beginning of his life in the Arctic. He continued traveling in the Arctic and elsewhere, joined the Danish resistance against the Nazis, worked on movies, wrote memoirs of his adventures and novels, but nothing ever compared to his youth in the Arctic. One last bit. I often wonder at the endurance of the inanimate. The stylish suit in which my mother got married is dark blue with white piping and strong lines. With its shoulder pads and jaunty cuffs that come to angular points, it looks like a naval uniform. And like a uniform, it made its wearer look more formidable, much more so than the faintly rumpled army khaki and cap my drafted father was wearing at their city hall wedding. In their military uniforms, they began 20 years together in which he won most of the battles, though she won the war. Or they both lost the struggle for love and subsided into war. Or won it since they begat four more people to continue the experiments. But the man she, had, she married has been dead a quarter century. The woman who wore that suit does not fit into it nearly half a century. Human beings have come in and out of existence, metamorphosed, declined. An excellent midnight blue wool surge is virtually the same as it was more than five decades ago. She wore it with a white fur muff in place of a bouquet since the wedding was in winter, and the animal pelt was a ferocious substitute for flowers. The tall, slender, dark-haired young woman who wore it is now stooped over, an ancient whose hair is whiter than the statues of the mourners, whiter than milk, white as snow. Even memory of that day is gone. No one else who was there is yet alive. But the photographs show them as they were, everyone young, hale, ignorant about what the next half century would bring them. The photographs have curled a little, but they're otherwise unchanged and unfaded. The pale pansy of her face under a jaunty little veil. If I could have warned her, I might have canceled my own existence. 
The wedding rings she wore, gold with tiny round turquoises like the sugar jimmies that go on cakes and cookies, vanished long ago, but the gold must exist even if the muff fell apart or was thrown away. Things that never lived don't die, and even the objects made out of the living, the paper from trees, the vellum from calves, can last for centuries. We wear out. The wool suit threatens to outlive everyone who knows or cares about it, and it is only wool and silk. Stone, metal, wood are far more enduring. The whiteness of the page before it's written on and after it is erased is and is not the same white, and the silence before a word is spoken and after is not the same silence. Snow falls before and after the growing season. There of my harmonious relationship with my mother flourished before my memory begins and after hers faded. She was herself being erased, a page returned to whiteness on its way to non-being. She had long told a happy story, undoubtedly true, in which she wanted to have four children and did, and another one, equally true in which she wanted to be independent, educated, emancipated, adventurous, and was full of bitterness and regret that all this had not transpired as she imagined it. It had, in fact, mostly taken place within the limits of her timidities, for she was fearful as well as furious, and maybe the latter because of the former. She added up her life over and over, but the sums were never quite the same. Whose are? It's like measuring your shadow. She seemed unable to hear me for many long years, but I spoke elsewhere I wrote. I became someone else, someone audible. I filled up pages. Trees fell from my books. I never heard her describe a dream, and I don't know what she dreamed of. Did she know herself in this way that I didn't? What were some of the other stories of who she was? Could she have told it another way, and would that have given her another life? I can take this other self of hers on faith, because our depth's everywhere, but I didn't come into contact with it much and wonder if she did. Ours was a game of chess in which she'd made the first move, and from there everything went forward. Or at least certain moves were made possible, and others impossible or at least unimaginable then. It's always easy for outsiders to instruct one on what should have been done. Directions for being fearless or saintly are, are likewise easy to issue, a little harder to execute. Like chess, there are rules, and breaking them takes momentum or confidence or a vision of other ways of doing things or all those things at once. Knights fell, pawns crawled, decades passed, and then finally the chessboard went white. The pieces lost their names. The game came to a halt. There's a chess set by the conceptual artist Yoko Ono in which all the chess pieces in the board are white, like those mourners 500 years before. The two, piece, the two arrays of pieces mirror each other, the army at war the army at war with itself, or not. Ono's was an artwork about the Cold War, but also about the way you can erase the very notion that there are two sides and merge. And surely we who were so alike could have been on one side, or were. Sometimes people endeavored to play chess, that game of medieval warfare with Ono's pieces anyway, struggling to keep track of whose piece was whose. So the game resembled one of those autoimmune disorders in which the body attacks itself. The monochromatic self, the ch monochromatic chess set called for another game, one in which there's only collaboration or contemplation or that other kind of play that is anarchic with improvising and evolving rules. Finally, the war ended. She forgot the stories that fueled her wrath, and when they were gone, everything was different. When I was in my 30s and things with her were at their worst, I'd considered never seeing her again, walking away from the chessboard. I think quitting, quitting then would have frozen our relationship at its worst point. In this late era, well down the road labeled Alzheimer's, my mother lit up at the sight of me. I wryly said to one of my brothers at this juncture, it's like we're in the same family. 
It wasn't just that she was more pleasant for me to be around. She was, seemed to be more pleasant for herself. She'd achieved something of the state people strive for through spiritual practice, a lack of attachment to the past and future, and a wholehearted participation in the present. It had come as a part of a it had come as part of a catastrophic terminal illness, not a de devotional pursuit, but it came. I think I might stop there. Surely that was so self-explanatory there could never be any questions. <laughs> okay, there might be a question. But, um, there, on the other hand, there might not. We could go straight to milling around and I will sign anything I wrote. I have a question, if I can, I can yeah, start. You could. I'm curious about the practice that you have of the phrases at the bottom of, of your books. Um, in this one, there is an entire essay that just runs across the, the bottom. Why, why is that something that you started to do? Um, it's, it's different. It's quotes and some pieces. I, I've, only, I, you know, I've only done it twice. Wanderlust, I had collected 30,000 words of quotes on walking, and we ran them across the bottom, and I loved it. It made the book have like a fast lean and a slow lean. And, and in both, both books, I was really interested in the way that narratives are roads, and we, tra we travel through as well, and that a book is also an architectural space, at least physical paper books, the beautiful books, not the strange electronic versions, are physical spaces through which you physically travel with your hands and eyes and to some extent your body. I measured one of my books, either uh, Savage Dreams or Wanderlust, uh, the length of every sentence, the number of sentences per page, a number of pages, and I came up with a rough calculation that if it was the story had been written as a, the, the narrative was a single line rather than wrapped up in that incredibly elegant format somebody invented a few thousand years ago, it would have been a line three and a half miles long. When you read a book, you actually travel quite a ways, um, if, if not with your feet. And so I was interested with this book because it's so much about the constructedness of stories, of constructing, making the architectural, the constructedness of the book also visible. And also, although I think of the book as a single architectural structure, it's kind of, it's kind of like the Zuggerat. There's, with the chapters, the, the book is structured like Russian dolls or mirror images. The first and last chapter are called apricots. The second and second to last are called mirrors. The third and third to last, apricots and so forth. And the one at the center called knot is the only one that doesn't repeat. But they do vary a lot. They are sort of self-contained. And so this 14th chapter that runs across the bottom, which somebody who watches CNN more than me called The Crawl, um, you know, kind of binds it all together literally, and you saw that you heard this sutra, suture, thread metaphor at the center. It's kind of a thread of continuity, literally, and in terms of its content. And it was it was a fun place to stuff a lot of cool stuff that had accumulated and hadn't gone into the, the 13 official chapters. But, uh, so, yeah? Yeah. You, striped shirt fellow. So, I've thought a lot about stories and their meaning, and that's something that comes out of the human realm, you know, being sort of yeah. meaning. And you've also thought a lot about nature, which is in order, you know, and nature doesn't necessarily have meaning. So I was wondering um, if you your sort of thoughts on the difference between order and story or order and meaning. 
You know, I'm not sure I'm equipped to answer that now. I'll have to think about it, but thank you. So other questions I'm more likely to be able to answer? But, uh, so, wow, I think we're going to go straight to milling around. All right. Uh, thank you all so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.